Thanks, Ken, Andrea, worship team, as always. Appreciate you guys. Morning. Doing all right? You look like you're doing all right. It's good to see you this morning. Um, we're going to be in Ephesians 1 mostly today. Um, before we get there, just a couple of announcements. Um, if you got the memo, today was Dress Up Sunday. Um, I see some of you got the memo. Um, left me hanging there. Um, no, in, in all seriousness, um, somebody this last week asked me about um, our, or I guess my philosophy on um, what we should wear to church. You know, we grew up in a culture where that seems to be a big deal. At least I grew up in a home and a church where we had church clothes. And, uh, and then so you have these different environments and different churches wear different things. Last week I was preaching from a t-shirt. And, uh, and so uh, in sharing with this individual kind of my philosophy and our philosophy, I thought it would be good just to address it with you guys, just in case you're curious, in case you wonder. Here's my hope, okay? Um, first of all, that uh, if you are a person who, um, who understands that, um, that, that God is worthy and you like to express that in what you wear to church and you like to dress up, I want you to be comfortable worshiping here, okay? If you want to wear a suit and tie, you want to wear a jacket, you want to wear a nice dress, I want you to be comfortable worshiping God here. However, if you're a person who either can't afford it or that becomes a distraction to you, and so a more casual approach to your worship um, is more beneficial to you, guess what? I want you to be comfortable here too. And so I'm all over the spectrum in what I wear. And I say all that to say this. The reason why that's really not such a big deal to us is because we have something that is a big deal, and it's the mission of God. And so... um, what we want to do is we want to be a compliment to everybody who wants to come and worship with us from all different backgrounds and different perspectives and philosophies without being a stumbling block or a hindrance. And so, um, so I thought it would be a good morning just to address that. Wear a coat today and say, hey, if you like wearing coats, I want to see you in a coat and tie. And I want you to feel comfortable, not like a fish out of water. However, if you're a person who uh, is either you can't afford it or you, t- you have a more casual uh, set of clothing at your house, I don't want you to go buy clothes so you can go to church, okay? Seriously. Show up and what you're comfortable in as long as we're, um, you know, not going crazy. Um, anyway, you get that. So whatever it's worth, I thought it would be good to address that publicly uh, from time to time to let you know. Um, so on to more important things. Um, we are a church on mission. And uh, for us, that looks, uh, it looks different um, depending on if we're talking about in our community or on maybe a state or national level or to the ends of the earth on international level. And so... Um, we're ramping up for a uh, trip to the Philippines in just a few weeks. Um, and so we, you'll notice in your worship guide there's a, an announcement about a pilot trip um, where four of our members, um, members of our, of our missions team, are headed to the Philippines to really start a new work among tribes and people groups who have never been exposed to the gospel. You say Jesus and they don't have any preconceived ideas or um, you know, misconceptions. They don't know who you're talking about. And so um, what we're doing is we're sending a group to go kind of paved the way for us to send more groups back over the next three to five years, okay? And so um, some of you have, have been hearing about that and you've got more questions. On uh, first Wednesday, October, which will be the Wednesday right before they leave, we're going to do a Q&A and, and really go over the details of the trip as best we can so that we as a church family have in mind what's going to be going on as we pray for them uh, and support them. So uh, first Wednesday of October, I want you to mark that on your calendar to come and to listen to the missions team share uh, where they're going to be going, what they're going to be doing. You're going to hear about you know, hiking and, and riding motorcycles and maybe even riding donkeys up through the hills to get to groups of people who've never uh, been exposed to the gospel. Um, and here's what that means for us. Um, I'm not going. I wish I was. 
Um, but since I'm not going, um, uh, Hallie and I have been praying for months about what God would have us, us do to help them go. And so um, we are um, collecting financial support for the team. It's a very expensive trip, uh, as you can imagine, international travel. Um, so if God has prompted your heart to help out, it, the details are in the worship guide, but it's very simple that you today, next Sunday and first Wednesday, um, either a check or just put an envelope and just put Philippines on it, the finance team will know this goes to help uh, this team get there. Um, it's about, it's, it's two couples, it's about $3,500 per couple. So if you could imagine that coming out of your unplanned budget, that's more than a vacation. Uh, and so they're, they're paying to go on this trip. We want to support them as a church. So there you go. I want you to, to have that information. And please be here for the first Wednesday service. Okay, um, on to uh, where we're at today. Ephesians 1 is where we'll be in a moment. We're going to start in Romans 3. I tricked you. Um, but you don't necessarily have to turn to Romans 3. You can. You don't have to. Here's what we're going to do today. Last week, we started the Marks of a Disciple series where we're going to look at the nine or so marks of a disciple according to Jesus. Those who would follow him, who would be his disciples, he marks them. He says these will be the things about this person's life. And so last week, we started very simply with the word yes. It's the first mark of a disciple. A person has turned from wherever they were going and said yes to the invitation of Jesus. If you were here last week, I said it's that simple. However, it implies a lot. I use that phrase at least three or four times in each service. It's a very simple yes to Jesus, but the implications are many. Okay, So what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through those implications of what happens in a disciple's heart at the moment they say yes. Okay? Now, I want to I clarify. This is what happens at moment one. Not necessarily what we're working towards. We're going to get to that on, on October 7th. I'm going to do a message on the idea of spiritual growth and sanctification. And we're going to look at those, um, the things that the Holy Spirit is doing in our life progressively. So today, in our minds, I want us to understand this happens at the moment you say yes to Jesus. All these things are implied. Okay? And so we're going we're gonna to end up in Ephesians 1, a beautiful passage in just a moment. Let me start with just a little bit about me. Um, the first part of what I'm going to share with you this morning in the way of misconceptions are um, really a reflection of my own misconceptions for a number of years as a Christian. Um, what I'm about to show you, I actually personally didn't get until I had been a Christian for almost 20 years. Okay, And I think it's probably true of the church world we live in as a whole, simply because I don't think it gets taught well. We, we talk about inviting a person to come to know Jesus or have a relationship with Jesus or to be saved or to be forgiven from sins, but that's usually about as deep as we go, and we don't get to the beautiful theological implications of what that means for us, okay? So I'm going to show you just a few misconceptions I think exist probably in most of our minds or at least at some point existed, and then we're going to look at a couple of biblical truths just to get us started with this conversation, okay? So I've got some slides I want to show you up on the screen. Um, the first misconception that I had as a person who didn't grow up in church, I knew that there was a right, I knew that there was a wrong, I knew that God liked mostly right, he liked us to not do wrong, okay? This is what I knew about God's my theology. Um, this was what kind of how I saw myself. I knew I was, like if there was a spectrum of complete sinfulness or perfect holiness, I understood God was way over there somewhere and I was in the bad section, okay? This was the way I viewed myself, 
And I understood this. You didn't have to convince me of this. I did some good things, but I did a lot of bad things. Didn't take a whole lot of convincing for me to realize I was on the bad end. Okay? So this was a misconception I had. I'll come back in a minute and correct. Okay? So let's, let's look at the next misconception. The second thing is this. I thought that in order to be on God's team, on God's side, to make God happy, I really just needed to shift my life a little bit until I was on the good side of things. Okay? I wanted to be mostly good. And you'll hear this a lot. Um, if you ask a person who maybe doesn't go to church and doesn't really know the gospel, um, do you think you're going to heaven? They say yes, and you say, well, why do you think so? Because I'm mostly good, okay? Because most of the time I do good. I do some bad things, but I overcompensate by doing good things. So this was a misconception I had. So number three then, this, this misconception was really in my mind, was the idea that if that's true, then there's a place where you can be neither good nor bad right in the middle, this idea of neutral, Okay? And, and we don't have time to get into what God says about the neutral position, about being neither hot nor cold. Um, he talks about vomiting that out because that does not make him happy at all. But there's really not a place where you can get, be not bad, not good, okay? And so let's look at a few biblical truths from Romans 3 to kind of get us started on this conversation. Romans 3, beautiful passage. I'm just going to start in verse 9 and go through verse 12. Um, Paul is writing about this idea of... Um, Bad, but not necessarily too bad. And so he says this, and what then? Are the Jews any better off? Just a little explanation. He's comparing Jews to Gentiles, and the, and the, and the misconception of Paul's time was this, that, that the, the Jews were sometimes bad, but the Gentiles were like off the chart bad. Okay, that's what he's dealing with, this, this false idea. So he says, what then? Are the Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So both are on the same end, wherever they're at. It's not like the Jewish are just a little better than the Gentiles on the theological spectrum. Okay, And then he goes on to say this. He quotes, as it is written, verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. So nobody on their own is over here on the righteous end of things. No, not one. One, no one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Okay, so what Paul is laboring to tell us then, we look at this biblical truth number one, is this, that the Bible is teaching this, that without Christ, okay, without all that we just sang about, I'm not just on the bad end of the spectrum, I'm off the chart what Paul will describe in Ephesians 2, dead in my sin. I'm not just sick. I'm not just sometimes struggling with sin. I'm dead in my sin. Okay? It was a misconception I have, and this is the biblical truth. If you keep reading in Romans 3, we'll skip down to uh, verse 19, because this is where the gospel comes in. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. Okay, that's basically saying this. Nobody gets to argue that they're not off the chart. Because anytime they try to bring an argument that I'm not that bad, the law says, oh, yes, you are. You're off the chart. Okay? And so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. And then we move down to verse 21, and here comes this beautiful news of the gospel. But now righteous, the righteousness of God has been manifested or, or made visible apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through, this is a key word in the whole New Testament. What's that word? 
faith. Not by works, okay? You don't work your way towards righteousness. The way you get there is by faith alone. It's a very important word in the gospel. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified as a gift, excuse me, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So here's the biblical truth number two. When a person becomes a believer, day one, moment one, says yes, it's not this works-based step one, step two, I'm getting better, I'm getting better, I'm, I'm getting closer to righteousness. At that moment, because of what Christ did, you become righteous in God's eyes. Now, that was hard for me to comprehend. Maybe that was the problem in my mind why I didn't get this. But this is what the gospel says. You go from off the chart over there to off the chart over here, completely righteous in God's eyes. Now, that is the reason why there's supposed to be joy in our salvation. Like David's like repenting, he's saying, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me the joy of that first moment when I went from there to there. That's why Jesus, when he's teaching the parables, like the parable of the, um, the, law, the treasure, and it's like a man who was over here fumbling around a field. He finds this treasure, and in his joy, he goes home and sells everything he has. That's why the parables we went through, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son, they all end in celebration because there's been this, this, this major movement from off the chart over here to off the chart over there. Now, when I began to get this, my worship bloomed. Like when I began to get, I sang songs about God differently. Like, like I, I got louder. I'm not just saying it's, an, it's a volume thing, but I got louder. I wanted more people to hear about what Jesus had done for me and in me. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to go to Ephesians 1. And I want us to see what happens at the moment of conversion, at the moment of salvation, whatever word you want to use, at the moment you turn to Christ, what takes place? I'm going to read a, just a verse to kind of overshadow everything we're going to talk about today. In 2 Corinthians 5, it's one of the many places Paul uses this wording. Verse 17, he says, therefore, okay, you've said yes to Christ, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You understand why he uses that phrase now, right? It's a new creation. It's not just an overhaul, right? It's not just a, a, a remodel project. You're a, a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So really today what we're talking about is being made new. When I say yes to Christ, I'm like completely made new. Ephesians 1 is, is where we'll spend the rest of our time, okay? A little th- something about Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 um, it was more than likely a doxology that the people recited or maybe even sang in the early church. If you know what a doxology is, if some of you grew up in like a Methodist church or a more formal church setting where doxology is, is recited. It's the beautiful declarations of things that um, that congregation believes are true. We sing doxology here, but there's another form of it where you just recite it, Okay. And so Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, more than likely, was a recital that Christians would get together in a congregation, and they would, they would recite it to one another to remind each other of what has happened in their lives through Christ. 
But it's important to understand the way that Paul is writing this and the tenses that he is using. He's saying, these are the things that have already been accomplished. We'll get to the not yet later. This is the stuff that is already, has already happened to you and in you in Christ. Okay? So this is where we're going in Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, that's a very simple wording. We use the word blessed kind of flippantly in our culture. Um, For these folks, blessed is the opposite of cursed, okay? It's not just like, um, you know, uh, something went my way, or um, I went to buy these clothes, and I found out they were on sale, and I was just blessed, you know? That's a flippant light version of what this word means. It's the opposite of cursed, Okay, this is back to, to Genesis uh, 12. You know, I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you kind of talk. And so, he, so this is a big phrase, right? When he's talking about blessed be God, blessed be God, our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. So what Paul is saying is that from me to get from over here off the spectrum to over there off the spectrum, like God bless me in that. It's the opposite, it's the undoing of cursed when you're blessed, So the first thing we see here is this, that we move from cursed to blessed. Did you know that? You need to know that. Too many believers are walking around still feeling like they're under the curse and they're they're, they're stewing in unnecessary guilt and shame that doesn't need to be there. And they're calling it conviction. There is conviction, and we're going to get to that in this series. But but the idea of I'm cursed or I'm, I'm, I'm unnecessarily feeling guilt and shame, that's not the gospel. Matter of fact, if you look at Galatians 3, 13, you don't have to turn there, just throw it up there. Christ redeemed us. This is what happens at salvation. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree or hanged on a tree. You understand when Jesus went to the cross, he was becoming the curse for us because we were off the chart over here cursed. And so in him we've been blessed. So the first thing is we've moved from curse to blessed. Keep reading Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Now, that's a, it's a big word. When we hear the word chose, we tend to think of like, um, I had an option between five colors of cars and I chose the white one. Okay? Um, this, is, this is really, again, it's the opposite of being rejected. Okay? So it's, it's bigger than that. It's the idea that when I was over there, I was rejected by God, but now I've been chosen. Like it's more than God just saying, okay, come on over. He's saying, no, come on over and pulling us over. It's an activity of God in our salvation, and it's beautiful. We've gone from rejected to chosen, 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5. And here's what I'm doing just so you know. I'm, just light, I'm walking through this, and I'm just going to read promises over you so that you begin to hear and feel the weight of what Jesus does when you say yes to him. So 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That has more weight now. Yeah, I used to be rejected, now I've been chosen. But you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know this or not, 
When you're off the chart over here, it doesn't matter what sacrifice you bring to God. He doesn't accept it because it has your fingerprints on it. So like you could sing something that's you know, this beautiful worship song as a person who's off the chart over here, okay? It's not acceptable because it has, it's tainted with who we are and our sin. And so what happens is this, that not only has God accepted us, he now accepts our sacrifices, our offerings, our praise, and we bring it to him. He says, yes, that's right. That is who you are now. And so we've gone from rejected to accepted. I love the imagery here Peter's using about these stones being shaped and put into a wall. If you've ever watched a mason work, um, like the wall that's, like those stones didn't just come out of the ground fitting together. A mason took each stone and, and measured and marked and chipped and measured and marked and chipped, and it's a, it's a process of shaping. And so it's not like God just opened up the gate and said, you just come on in now. No, God takes you like a stone like, that's how intimately he is involved in you, in your life, in this salvation. He takes you like it, and he chips and shapes on you and fits you into the wall of believers. Just love that imagery. Like a, like a mason doing his, his craft. We'll, we'll move on. Okay, so then the next thing in verse 4 we see is this, that we were chosen in Christ, in him before the foundation of the world, which blows my mind, um, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You see where that, that whole good, bad thing doesn't work anymore? He chose us to be what? Holy and blameless. Like perfectly righteous. Now think about that. What does that mean? I mean, not only did I go from cursed to blessed, I went from completely unrighteous to now not just good, righteous. You seeing that? From unrighteous to Righteous. Um, we could go all over the New Testament. I loved the study for this week because I just was reading promises. It's beautiful declarations of the gospel. Um, again, in 1 Peter 2, just reading verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is what God says about you. Not some preacher's interpretation or a denominational theology. This is what the word of God says happens in your life at the moment you receive the gospel and respond to Jesus. You go from being unrighteous to righteous. It gets even more intimate than that if you look at the end of verse 4. Just a little explanation. If you wonder why this is kind of choppy, like the end of verse 4 looks like it belongs with verse 5, it's because it's that doxology. It was read as one Statement. Like, if any of it's true, all of it's true kind of thing. And so the end of verse 4 says, In love, connecting to verse 5, he predestined us for adoptions, adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he lavished. Hmm. Which he has blessed us, Sorry. That's lavish is coming next. That's a beautiful word too. Which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, we go then from, if you read Romans 5, we actually don't go from being people who aren't interested in God. We actually go from people who are enemies of God. Like that's, when I first heard that, I went, whoa. Like I never described myself that way. I always thought I just wasn't on his team. But Romans 5 says, before you were in Christ, you were an enemy of God. You were working against him. In your life and in his kingdom, you were as good as an enemy. But did you see what happens when we become in Christ, when we give our lives to Christ? We've now become adopted. 
See, we're not just friends hanging out with God. We're like adopted as sons over here, okay? Now, I was tempted to go gender neutral on this and go sons and daughters, but because of the impact of the word sons, I don't want to, because I want you to see this, ladies, what it implies for your life as well. So we go from enemies to sons, because in this cultural context, it meant something more to be a son. Now, this is not God saying, I like boys better, but this author in this context is talking about all rights to, to the inheritance. It's not just one of the kids, it's the kid. And so the idea of sonship was huge for these people. Ladies, that's implied for you too. That's why I don't want to go gender neutral on it because it means something rich here. We've gone from enemies, not just to a kid adopted in, but to sonship in God's kingdom. That is that is beautiful. Okay. I hope that something's happening in your heart right now. Like, I know this is just kind of lecture format. I'm just teaching. But, like, I hope your heart is stirring right now over the things that God either has already done in your life or wants to do in your life today through his son Jesus. So he's gone from enemies to sons. In Galatians, Paul talks about it very intimately. And we'll go on to say this. Um, he talks about our airship, which we'll get to in just a minute. Um, just this beautiful uh, explanation I tell you what, let's not even, I mean, we can, let's not even go there, but here's the point of what Paul's saying. Here's the point. We don't call him God anymore. We call him Daddy. He does this in Romans, and he does it in Galatians. Like, because we're sons now, we don't just call him God like we don't know him, but like we call him Abba, Father, Daddy. That's how intimate we now know the king of the kingdom. And so, like, for me, I didn't get that. I went from thinking that, I, you know, when I first became a Christian, I thought, well, I'm, I, I was mostly bad, now I'm mostly good. But God's still far off. Like, like I, I, I still don't really know who he is. I just, I, when I think about him, I just picture the word God. And Paul's like, man, that's so shallow. It's not who you are anymore. You've been adopted in as a son. Call him dad. Call him dad. So we've gone from enemies to sons. Ephesians 1, 7. We'll move down to verse 7. Um, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Now we're going to stop right there because just the way that Paul has worded that or has recited this to us Um, Let me just real quickly, okay, so in him we have something, and here's what we have. We have redemption, or we have forgiveness of our trespasses, but it's according to the riches of his grace. Like, like if you think about that's just too much, like that's just too much to think that I went from over there to over here, you're right, but here's how God afforded it. He paid for it by, uh, he paid for it out of the riches of his grace, because there was no point where God runs out of grace, okay? You, you getting this? You're right. It was an expensive purchase. It was a big move. God paid for it. But the, but so it makes God look like this, this banker who, who never runs dry. But it's, it's bigger than that because not only did he pay for it, he lavished us with it. And that's like the sloppy word. That's like it wasn't just tit for tat. It was God just like instead of like, like I use this illustration like painting within the lines. He took the paint bucket of grace and just dumped it on you, just doused you in it. Are you starting to see? Yeah, that was a big move. 
God paid for it out of his riches and he just dumped it on me. This is is why my worship began to bloom when I began to get this. So we have gone from guilty to innocent, but that's huge. That's huge. Uh, Romans 8.1, there is therefore, if you're over here, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Okay? So not just kind of good and kind of bad, none. Done. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Um, Hebrews will describe this now because of what Jesus has done. He's opened up this way into God's presence. And if you imagine God's presence as a throne room, which is a really a, a biblical way to think of it, here's what's happened. You've been like invited to just run in now. Hebrews describes it as a throne room of grace. Um, I don't know if you've ever been called to court, um, not jury duty, but like um, called to court because you've done something wrong. <laughs> I have been. Um, evidently, if you get too many tickets within a two-year period in the state of Texas, they, they want to take your driver's license away and call you irresponsible or something. So when I was much younger, uh, I didn't know that, and nor did I really keep count. I got to a point in my driving record where I had too many tickets within a 24-month period, and they sent me a letter, and they invited me into the throne room. We want to see you. We want to meet with you. And here's our intention. We want to take your driver's license away. Um, we expect you to be here. So I went to that court meeting, um, very nervous, very intimidated. Very, like I didn't tell anybody I was going because I was just embarrassed, completely embarrassed. But, but I remember, like I'll never forget, you know, sitting there watching, waiting my turn, watching everybody go up and the judge looking at the record, giving the sentence, that whole thing. I was, I was a nervous wreck. What Hebrews is trying to say is you no longer have to be a nervous wreck in God's throne room. You get to run into it now because you're over here completely innocent. That needs to sink in right now for you. If you have turned to Jesus, you need to understand that's the way God sees you. You're not trying to get to innocence. You're there. You're already there. So, by his blood, he has redeemed us and given us complete forgiveness of sins. So we have gone from guilty to innocent. Um, Read on into the end of verse 8. So he made this known to us. The mystery of his will according to the purposes which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Here's God's plan through all this is to unite. To unite all things to him. Things in heaven and on earth. And so, like, if you haven't got it yet, Paul says it again. Like, this whole move that God has made in our lives from here to there. Like, it's not like God has just invited you to a party and you have to go home at the end. Like, it's this permanent uniting that, that, that God has done. You're not now just hanging out with God. Like, you're, you're, you're united to him. It's the idea of adoption. You've been permanently adopted in. You can put an, a natural child up for adoption, but you can't put an adopted child up for adoption. It's a permanent situation, a permanent arrangement. You've been chosen in, handpicked, pulled over. It's a permanent arrangement. You've been united to God. Do you, do you think of yourself that way? Like, I'm united to him. There's a bond holding us together, which is where we go next. So I've go from separated to united. And then in verse 11, again, the idea of sonship comes up. Verse 11 says, In him 
we have obtained, this is all past tense, you seeing that? You've attained this. This is what they would recite to one another when they would get together. You've attained this, verse 11. We've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that, in, 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 my, in my mind, that's the church's way of saying, this doesn't, like, this doesn't have to make sense to you. It, it makes sense to God. It was his plan. It was his will. It was his purpose, not ours. It's not supposed to make sense to you. That's the beauty of it. That's why it's the mystery of his will. God came up with this. God did it according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. So, Sorry, I went back to 10. 11, he predestined us according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And we'll, we'll read 13 in just a minute. So, this united to God, just before we move on, and you don't have to write this down, like I just want to reiterate what I just said from 10 to 11 and 12. It was his design. Are, are you seeing that? Like it wasn't a last ditch effort by God. These people, right? <sighs> Fine, I'll just do it. Like, are you seeing that, like, if you, even if you can't comprehend the idea that you were chosen before the foundations of the earth, you are predestined, like, all these big words, if you don't get that, just understand this. It was not a last-ditch effort by God to fix you. Like, God doesn't present himself that way in Scripture as a God with one last option. Like, this is God's design. Now, here's why that matters, okay? So I'm over here, I'm a Christian. I'm a disciple of Jesus, and on many days, I don't feel like I deserve it. We talked about that last week. I don't, I don't feel like I deserve to be over here, okay? So that can be a really healthy thought because that's the moment you go, oh, that's right. I didn't come up with this idea. That's the moment where you just remember that wording from Paul, and I don't fully get it all, but I know this. This was like God's idea, okay? That matters, that you remind yourself God initiated this plan to get me over here. Now, we'll move on then to a couple more implications. And then we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, okay? So in a minute, we're going to go to a, just, just a beautiful diagram that shows how all this happens. But what you need to understand is this. The Holy Spirit of God is doing all of this in you. That's why it, it doesn't feel right. Because you remember what it was like to be mostly bad, completely bad. And you're like, I, can, I just can't do these things on my own. Perfectly righteous? Come on. Right? If you, if you leave that up to me, three seconds in, I've derailed it. Right? And that's why we, at the very end, move to the work of the Holy Spirit. So God says, this was my plan, my design. But not only that, I'm the one doing these things. And so when we get in that moment of just, I just don't deserve to be here. I'm just nervous because I'm going to mess it all up. God says, just get nervous. Mess it all up. Try. It's my Holy Spirit doing these things, and you can't mess up the work he's doing. And so this is where we end in this passage. Verse 13. In him you also, when you, look at this, this wording, when you heard the word of truth, okay, which is the gospel, when you heard it, the gospel of your salvation, something happened, okay? 
when you heard the gospel and you believed in him, at that moment, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. I didn't, I didn't grow up in church. I didn't get all the theological terms, once saved, always saved, perseverance of the saints, all that, that mess. And I know we grow up in church and we, we believe things because the church told us. Some of us, okay, some of us. Some of you read the Bible and you see things for yourself. But for, for a lot of us, we just grew up believing whatever the church says. And so I grew up believing once saved, always saved. But if you, if you challenge me on that or you ask me to show you in the scriptures, I couldn't take you anywhere. I said, well, I just believe it because that's what the preacher said last Sunday, Okay. And, and I find that's true on the other end of the spectrum. You find folks who maybe say, well, I think you can lose your salvation. You go, okay, well, show me in the scripture. And they go, I, I don't know. I just know that's what our church believes, okay? So I'm not a guy who comes from like this doctrine background that I'm trying to infiltrate on you. All I'm trying to do is read the text and see what happens, okay? And so what he says at that moment, like Paul, I feel like, is really trying to make sure we understand this. The moment you heard the gospel and you believed and were saved, you were sealed, by the Holy Spirit, okay? So two things, one, the Holy Spirit isn't just something that happens to the super spiritual, it happens to every believer, and two, he's the one that seals my salvation. It's gonna come up again in the next text. Like I, I hope you're seeing what God is saying about you and your position now. You didn't do anything to get there? You can't do anything to get out of there? He's the one who brought you there. He chose you there. He predestined you there. He saved you there. He adopted you there. And he seals you there. Whatever you want to call it, he does it. Like the sealing idea is, it's so much more than like I lick an envelope and seal it. I don't think we really do. Do they even sell envelopes anymore? I mean, I know everything's digital now. But like it's the idea that official documents were were written from a person of authority, a king, folded, placed in, and sealed with the wax. Yeah, the signet ring sealed. Not just to keep it safe so nobody can open it, but to say, this bears authority. So the Holy Spirit of God, as God's signet ring, has sealed your life. Okay, you understand it? So if Satan comes to you and says, ah, you're unworthy to be a child of God. You don't belong in his kingdom. Look, you've messed it up again. It's not by your authority that you're there. He has to look through the seal of the Holy Spirit on your life to, to spin those lies to you. And so you look back through the seal of the Holy Spirit and go, ha ha, I'm in here. Okay? Not in an arrogant fashion where you just go do whatever you want. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But this idea that I don't have to listen to those lies. Not because my preacher said so or because the church told me, but like when I, when I hear the lies of Satan, I look back, I see the seal of the Holy Spirit on my life. He sealed me in here. I couldn't get out of here if I wanted to. And then look at this next last thing, verse 14. Who is, talking about the Holy Spirit, look at this. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? This, this is why we sang the song today. Glory to God. To the praise of his glory. If all these things are true, my worship, right, should bloom, should explode the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of my salvation. When that rests on your soul, right, it should ignite a passion. It should ignite a joy and a zeal and a love and a, right, I just can't sing loud enough. I just can't proclaim it bold enough what God has done to me to the praise of his glory.
Now, let's look at these things all in one picture together. On the back of your worship guide, we'll put it on the screen, you should have this. It's just something I put together so I could visually see it. Like I, I was studying this passage a few months ago, and, uh, and I was jotting down all the notes of things that were implied about my life when I became a Christian, and I was like, I just need to see it all in one picture. So that's where I came up with this. And I wanted you to see it, okay? So just looking at all this stuff has happened, okay? So in the middle, you've got, middle top, you've got a disciple. This is a believer. Then you've got the work of the Trinity, and it's all over this passage, by the way, what Jesus does, what the Father does, and what the Holy Spirit does in us and through us and to us. So here's what happens. So if you start at the top, I've gone from cursed to blessed. The Father has blessed us in Christ, just following the text all the way around. I've, I've gone from rejected to chosen. I've gone from unrighteous to righteous. I've gone from enemies to sons, guilty to innocent, worthless to redeemed, separated to united. Look at this, illegitimate to heirs. And then at the very end, I've been sealed and guaranteed by who? Holy Spirit of God. Okay? Now, this has all happened at saying yes. That should blow your mind. This is not like 10 years in, you get number two, and 20 years in, you get number three. This all happens at the moment you are saved. So here's where we're going to go from here, and and then we'll we'll wrap up. Next week, we're going to come back and look at baptism. And I felt like it was important to understand all this before we get into the symbolism of baptism because really you're symbolizing all of this plus some when, when a person is baptized in front of um, the congregation. They're saying all these things, baptized. And that's where we're going next week. Then on October 7th, we're actually gonna have, at least in one of our services, a baptism service. Um, several people have uh, been just wrestling with this even before we got to it and have approached either myself or another staff member and said, I'm thinking about being, I wanna be baptized. I think it's the time, that sort of thing. And so we said, all right, fine, let's put it, let's put it on the calendar and let's see what God does. So we've done that, October 7th. Um, if that's you, by the way, um, on the kiosk on the way out, we have these little baptism little three-leaf pamphlet things. We put them together. You know, just, just take that home, start there. It has, it has um, how to contact us, what to do, what to wear, all that kind of stuff. It's all in there, okay, if that's you. Next week, I'm teaching on it. I just want to give you a heads up. So in two weeks from today, we're going to be baptizing folks, um, at least in the second service, and we're trying to do it in both services. So I want you to know that in advance. But when we do that, when you come back and attend our service, and I want you to remember this, okay? When you see the first person baptized, we won't have time to go through all this again. I want you thinking about all that, okay? I want you thinking about what is being expressed is all that plus some. And then I'm praying that the Holy Spirit of God would land on you and and convict you about where you are in that. If you are, um, let's just start here. If you're not a believer, if you've never said yes to Jesus, okay? Um, I I wanted to show you today um, how magnificent God is and the extents that he's gone to, to love you. That sense of unworthiness on, on a, just a gut level, that's, that's, that's a, a really good emotion or a good thing to feel or think because, because we are. That's what makes that so glorious. So if you're a person who's like, well, I'm gonna get my life right, and then I'll start calling myself a Christian. God would say to you on that spectrum from good to bad, you're never gonna get there. Quit, quit trying. I do the work. I'm the one that gets you there. And so instead of carrying that unnecessary guilt and shame around with you, and on a day where you're doing better than worse, it's, it's, it's not quite as strong, but on those days you really mess up, it's just, instead of carrying that around today, would you just bring that to the foot of the cross and say, based on what I just heard today from the Bible, 
I'm laying all this down. I'm not carrying this around anymore. I'm taking forgiveness. That's offered to me today, I'm taking that. Being adopted into your family today, God, I want that. No more of this, I'm just on the outside looking in thing. I want to be united with God. Sealed by his own spirit. Okay, if that's you, let's start there. Today, you can, and I pray and I hope you will, where you're seated, just have a conversation with God. I want all that. Say yes to him. By faith, those things happen. If you want to talk with somebody about that some more, you've got questions, um, I'm, I'm always down here at the front, and then we have um, prayer partners in the back. Um, any of us would love to just talk with you about that. If you came with a person who's a believer, ask them. Um, we'll pray with you. We'll walk you through it again. But, but do this today. And if you have already done this, and yet you're in that struggle that I was in for like two decades of, I just don't, I'm, I'm just like, I'm, not, I'm having a hard time believing that's all true. Maybe by just, just today on faith alone, you would say, you know what, I'm just going to choose to believe that because the Bible says it. And see what happens in your life. When you begin to just agree with God, okay, this is who I am now. The Holy Spirit begins to change and shape and mold who you are in a way. It's beautiful. Well, let's, um, let's pray together and ask the worship team to come back up.